Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 69. Jump in, but make sure you're doing your research and you have a plan at least two steps ahead. You're going to think at least two steps ahead where they're going to be. Otherwise, you're going to fall behind. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Joshua Deck, and we have a wonderful show for you today. He's coming from grazing from a different angle than we usually talk about. He is a homesteader, and he found grazing so that he can better manage his land and his livestock. And while he's not producing meat for sale to others, he is growing meat for his own family. So a little bit different angle than usual. I think you'll really enjoy it. And then for the overgrazing topic, we're going to talk about mushrooms. Before we talk to Joshua, 10 seconds about my farm. I was looking at Facebook earlier today, and in one of the groups I'm part of, they were talking about corral design and flow of cattle through it. And they were talking about they were unable to get the cattle to flow through their corral very well. One of the biggest things that I've done that's made a tremendous difference is that whenever I have my cows or my dad's cows up near our corral, and we have a stationary corral that system built, that I just run the cows through it. And I say run, I, I take it very slow and I just push them through it and they... I'm not catching them in the head gate or anything, but they just know to go through the alley. They have to go into the tub and then through the alley. The first few times, I just did it like I was working cows, but I didn't catch anything. So I'd put, I can put about six head in my tub and then I can push them into my alley and they would go on and then I'd open the gate and do it. The last time I had my cows go through the chute, I didn't even have anyone to help me push them in. They just knew that was the way out. I worked slowly and calmly, and they fed themselves. Now, I was doing that by myself, so that makes a big difference. I'm curious, are there things that you do to make those times when you're messing with your cows more efficient? I jump over to the Facebook group, Grazing Grass Community on Facebook, and share it with us. Enough about that. Let's talk to Joshua. Joshua, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thanks, Cal. I'm excited to be here. Joshua, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Well, I guess you would consider a homesteader. I'm not really uh, running an operation, operational farm where I'm actually bringing an income off the farm. It's more about self-sustenance and sustaining ourselves, trying to be more self-reliant, realizing we still rely on a lot of outside in, you know, inputs. But we have 20 acres in um, be southwest Missouri, and it's it's mostly about five acres of it is woods. And then the other 15 acres is kind of old field, had been plowed probably about 20 years ago. It sat for a few years, maybe kind of used as a, pas- as a pasture, but I don't really think it was really grazed much. 
And then it was bush hogged. Actually, the one neighbor to my north said he bush hogged it about 15 years ago for the people that owned it at the time. For the last 15 years, it's just sat kind of untouched. So it's in various stages of succession, a lot of different, different plants, trees, you know, grasses, all, all kinds of, all kinds of good forage, but it, it's kind of starting to take over and get too thick. So oh, yeah. kind of coming here, we had the intention, I wanted to get animals, but I had a kind of a convention, I shouldn't say I had a conventional mindset, but my thought process was always kind of a conventional, well, I just need a paddock here and, and a couple acres there. And when I really started to just, you know, when I do something, I try to research it. So I started to read a lot of uh, different, you know, grazing books, articles, mainly a lot of articles, led me to books, got a few books. And I realized, you know, I really need to be trying to do this regeneratively and moving them across the landscape. You know, that's where we kind of thought, well, let's get some sheep. The neighbor gave me two goats, gave my son and I a goat for gifts. We ended up getting Dexter cattle. In our, so we've been, been on this homestead about a, about one year now, just over a year. And we got animals this spring. It's kind of the first year we kind of landed here. We did do some pasture poultry last year, which we've been doing on previous properties that we've been at, you know, raise around 50 or so kosher kings, which are like a freedom ranger chicken. So they're, they're not your standard Cornish crosses. They're a little bit more apt to free range and try to get their own, get their own food. You know, they take a little bit longer to develop, but I think overall my feed cost is probably around the same, even though it might take three to four weeks longer than say a a Cornish cross. We've also done ducks layer and we do layer chickens. Uh, We've done ducks for eggs and turkeys for eggs and meat. So that, you know, that we had all done last year and previous years on other properties that we were at, but you know, this is our first year to actually have um, some four-legged livestock, and we kind of jumped into it and, and got a got a bunch going all at once and bit off a lot, and I'm still chewing to try to catch up. But Now, you mentioned when you started researching about grazing, you were reading articles. Where were you finding those articles? Were they online or did the magazine? A lot of it came from, I, I was really into um, studying permaculture probably back like starting in 2016. I kind of got into permaculture. I took a permaculture design course in 2017. So oh, a lot yeah. of, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the regenerative principles are talked about and taught there and kind of permaculture and regenerative ag, I, I would say are, are close cousins in my opinion. You know, I mean, it's all, all these things are just different terms that are obviously thrown around, but you know, those, those worlds like the regenerative ag homesteading kind of permaculture worlds all kind of run together. So that's where I did you know, hear about it. Permies.com was a website that, you know, they have a lot of different boards and posts and kind of reading a lot of stuff there. You know, one of the first livestock books, I guess I read was one about parasite management. And it was just a big deal was just not leaving them on the same paddock because, you know, and we can get into a little bit more when we talk about maybe my, our person, my personal journey, which kind of propels all this with my family. But, you know, we want to raise them without all the antibiotics, without having to treat them for worms and everything else, because, you know, we're trying to develop the reason we want to make our, have our own food and control, you know, produce our own stock and game, maybe about 2012 or something, sometime in there. So about a decade, a little over a decade ago, my wife and I were pretty much living like the standard American life. We both had regular jobs. You know, I was you know, driving to an office every day. She was driving to an office. We did have a 14 acre property. I had, I wanted to get animals, but I just never felt like I had the time. You know, I had too much work and I just didn't feel like I had the time. You know, we were not, you know, eating healthy. We didn't really kind of think about it. And then because of some minor health issues that I was experiencing my wife, we just, we kind of decided that, well, hey, maybe we got to start cleaning up our diet a little bit. And then we watched Food Inc. And I think that was a big game changer the movie Food Inc. So probably around that time, we saw that and kind of got introduced to Joe Salatin there. And a lot of things started clicking. So we started to clean up our our diet. Really, we went on a, a paleo diet, real strict paleo diet, which is, you know, mainly just meat and not even, not even any grains. We became better health. And then we kind of, at the same time, we started on a spiritual journey where, you know, we kind of got more grounded in our spiritual life, took that seriously, started attending the congregation and kind of, you know, changed our life and, you know, gave ourselves over to the Messiah. And 
that really pro- propelled me to study scripture. And in studying scripture, I kind of started to understand that all the, you know, the forefathers of the faith, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all shepherds. And they, people that just the Israelites as whole had a, and the whole, the whole religion, really the whole scriptures, the whole Bible is based on agriculture from the Messiah's parables, Jesus, or I would say Yeshua, but from the Messiah's parables to all the way back to the, through the Old Testament, you know, all the way through Paul's letters, you know, there's all kinds of references to agriculture in there. Oh yeah. And, you know, one of the big things that really made me think about this is, you know, in Genesis 2, 7, it says that, that, that Yahweh Elohim or, or the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed in him the breath of life. And the man became a living creature and kind of that realization that we're made from, from the soil, essentially the word there where it says from the dust of the ground, the ground is ha-adama, ad, you know, man is Adam in Hebrew. So Adam is man and Adama is ground soil. So they're, they're, it's actually the same root word for both of them. So we're, we're of that. So kind of that in that time period, there was a whole journey of kind of recognizing and realizing that, you know, soil health is important. It's important what we put in our bodies and that kind of really propelled us along the journey. And at the time, did you say you were living in Pennsylvania? Yeah. So we were living in Pennsylvania. We had, we kind of moved around a little bit there, had a few different properties through this journey. We actually ended up in town for a little bit. After my son was born, we tried to move, we moved closer to my in-laws just to try to help, you know, with my son and having a baby and everything like that. So we moved into town. We were in town for about a year and we just, we're not town people. I, I grew up in the country. I, I worked down dairy farms and horse farms and I never really lived in town, but I thought it was in a neat little town, tree line street. And I, you know, I had a, was really getting into gardening at that time. So I had a garden in the backyard. It was actually a lot of blacktop. I ripped it all up, brought it a bunch of topsoil, planted a whole garden. But then we decided, ah, it's not what we were going to do. So we found two acres of land that we got for a good deal and kind of cashed in a lot of the different savings that we had and went out and built a, built up this two acre property. And that's right around the time I took my permaculture design course because I was trying to really look at it. It was a steep hillside. At that time I had an idea, well, we, we just, I wanted to have two sheep, you know, it'd be fun to have two sheep, but it just, even on two acres, once I got there, I realized I really didn't have the room for them, but we were there for several years and did a lot of gardening. We did did run chickens there. That's kind of my first, our first experience with chickens and ducks and integrating them and, you know, through permaculture systems in our little two acre garden, you know, did a lot of swales and berms and made little pasture areas. It was, it was nice. It was two little acres, easy to manage, you know, and I was my little pastures and I ran the chickens when I didn't have chickens on them. I just cut them as a scythe for hay. And it was, it was kind of, it was a little mini farm, but it was, it was fun. But I, you know, I guess I kind of wanted more of a challenge and some people we knew, an older couple was that da- were downsizing and they had a 20 acre property that was up on top of a mountain back in Pennsylvania. Now we were in Southeast Pennsylvania, but it was kind of this rocky hilltop, but there was some area on it and it was a lot of woods. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to do a woodland homestead. I had read a couple of books about woodland homesteads and, you know, I was up for that challenge after our two acre, you know, little, our property we were on for several years. So we moved up there and uh, we were there for about a year and that's when COVID happened. And then COVID kind of enabled me to start to work from home. And after a few months of that and kind of not knowing where the world was going and kind of not and realizing that the debt load we had there and just the, the, the soils, the everything else, it really wasn't going to, you know, be the best spot for a homestead. We decided to move out to Missouri, which we had already kind of had in mind for years because there's a lot of people that, um, kind of in our walk of faith that are, that are out here, some family that I had out here. So we moved out to Missouri. Our first homestead was a 10 acre place that was kind of in the woods. We, some garden spot, you know, places there. And I was going to try to build in syllable pasture, which I was working on running chickens and turkeys there gardening, you know, different reasons we ended up selling and, and kind of did what homesteads were really shooting up about a, just over a year ago, you know, homestead prices were shooting up 
And I kind of always kept my eye on real estate and we thought, well, let's, let's kind of see what happens. And our place sold in like a weekend. I mean, there was people, it was crazy. People were coming, offers were coming in. Nobody that, that didn't even see the place. They just looked at it online, you know, and, and, um, we ended up selling that place. We're going to buy another place that fell through. And then this place we came up and it was after a lot of prayer that we were able to, to buy this property where we're at now, the 20 acres. Sounds like a very interesting journey. So you spent some time with your homestead, getting that permaculture principles going and in place. And then you've got this new property you moved into. Tell us how you, you got started with that property, what you did to where you are now. I had to make some quick decisions when we decided to buy it just because properties were coming on the market and going quick. There's several things over the years after being on different homesteads and properties and trying to to understand what works best. You know, I, one of the first things I looked at was, you know, the NCR or yeah, an RCS web soil survey to try to see what kind of soils were on there. You know, we had decent soils, barred and silt loam, and I saw the potential kind of uh, almost like a, a canvas in the, the stage of succession that had variable stages. So where our house is, and that's kind of where everything starts in our like zone, you know, zero, zone one, you know, our house kind of enters like the gateway of the property and then behind or, or I like to think of it in front of our house, there's about five acres of pretty mature oaks, you know, pecans. And a really a whole big mix of hardwoods, Missouri hardwoods right around the property. So that kind of creates a nice, just place to live, you know, where it's, it's a nice wooded spot. We have a couple openings where we have some gardens in, but we're really not doing any grazing yet in those areas. I'm going to kind of, a lot of it's going to be dedicated to mushroom cultivation. It's, you know, there was a house on the property, uh, a pole barn house. There was an old kind of cabin. We call it the rack shack. That's where our deer head, our deer racks are and stuff like that. And, you know, there was a couple, bunch of little miscellaneous outbuildings and uh, a pretty new pole barn. So it was nice. It's a nice kind of landing spot to come in. And, and a lot of that infrastructure was done. We did put a greenhouse in and there wasn't really a good dedicated garden. Um, there was an area that had been, the previous guy was kind of mowing as a yard that we're in the process of converting it into a garden. So I've been digging swales and doing rate, you know, like a, a mounded bed system with paths and then garden beds where we're kind of doing some small cover crops right now, mainly because it's our first year that we've really gardened there and a few just typical vegetables, but it's not real big yet. And then, like I said, really the balance of the property, probably 15 acres is what's going to be dedicated to grazing, but it's really, like I said, old field, which is in the various, within permaculture, you kind of learn about the various stages of succession, but, you know, disturbance would be like kind of a plowed field. And then you kind of get to like, a, you know, a grass, you know, prairie area growing in, and then you kind of get into your, what they call an old field, which is basically, there's still a lot of, you know, here there are, we have a mixture of prairie species like gamma grass, Indian grass, blue stem, little and big blue stem. You know, there's no thick pockets of it. It's all kind of just sporadic. You know, there's a little bit of, we, there is some fescue because it's just, we're in Missouri and there's fescue, you know, everywhere. It's just, it grows everywhere around here. So there's a little bit of fescue in there. A lot of berry canes, a little bit of moleflower rosebush, but there's also a lot of Cerisa lesbidiza that made its way in here, which has actually been pretty good for the, the goats and the sheep. They seem to like it. But besides that, there's so many other forbs that, that I, I don't even know them all. I can't even identify them all. But having that mix is to start with, you know, I feel blessed by that because I think a lot of people are trying to get to that. What I'm trying to do as trying to manage it as I graze it and as I'm trying to remove, you know, thin some trees out. There's a lot of ash and we have the emerald ash borer coming through, which we had that in Pennsylvania. And I saw what it did. My dad has a 55 acre farm in Pennsylvania and the emerald ash borer just wiped out his woods, um, you know, because it was predominant, predominantly ash and it just, it took them all out in a, in a couple of years. So the, the boar is already here. It's been, been seen in our County in Missouri. So I know it's only a matter of time. So I'm not going to really, you know, put stock in a lot of, I'll keep a few, but I'll, on a lot of those ash trees, I'm trying to encourage things like the pecans, the persimmons, oaks, especially oaks, you know, there's quite a bit of oak and 
you know, I'm trying to encourage the growth of favorite hardwoods, leaving a, leaving some cedar because I, I noticed that the, the stock definitely liked the cedars. Number one on a hot day where it's kind of hot and flies, they kind of crawl in, they get themselves in there and it seems like the flies stay off of them pretty good. So that definitely seems like a reasonable species. At first, the first areas, I was actually probably cleaning too much cedar off. Now, as I'm going, I'm, I'm trying to leave a little bit more for them. In the core of the property, there's actually a nice cedar thicket that um, I'm intending to use kind of as a, in the winter time when it gets real, real bad to try to run them in there and keep them in there at times as like a natural barn, so to say, just to kind of keep them sheltered. Cause I don't have a barn for any of them other than I did make some little temporary run-ins that I used for, cause I was milking one of the Dexter cows. So it was basically a place to I can take her in to milk them. And then where they're grazing now, I actually am grazing neighboring property. That was a CRP field. And it was all um, about 15 years ago or so. It was seeded into a natural, a native prairie mix. And they burn it off this past spring after years of just having a lot of growth on it. They burnt the whole thing off, made hay on about half of it, what they could. It might've been about a 200 acre plot or so made hay on some of it, but a lot of it was overgrown. And the neighbor, real nice fellow, he allowed me to, um, to graze my cattle on it, on anything that they didn't make hay on. So I'm very thankful for that because we've been in a really bad drought here where we're at and we're just kind of, we're still in it, but at least we're getting some rain. We got some rain today. I have them down there and they're doing great. And that's, that's, that's the nice thing about rotational grazing, especially with the cattle I'm running. I'm running two wires and I, it's just premier, the premier one, I have the, I think it's the IntelliShock 80. So it's the 0.8 joules output and then, um, running two strands of the poly rope. So the heavier kind of diameter stuff. And, you know, it takes a little bit, but I've actually kind of speeded up, you know, once you've done it a few times, you definitely get more efficient with it. So I'm moving them every few days. I'm trying, I'm definitely not overgrazing his property. I mean, I'm trying to actually do a good job with it and show the benefits of that versus just even making hay because, you know, with the hay, they, they cut it so short and it doesn't have, it doesn't have, you know, that the blade length and I'm trying to keep, you know, I might be getting on that, uh, a lot of it when it's 24 to 36 inches and I'm only grazing it down to maybe about, you know, a, a foot or, or not, not, not less than a foot. And it, and it actually, it's amazing to see, to see the results of it already. I mean, just in a few weeks of grazing on that ground that hasn't been grazed in who knows how long. I mean, it was actually a row crop before that it was put into that CRP field and, you know, it's, it's bouncing back and it's, it's got just in the last few weeks, several inches of growth and looking really nice. One thing you mentioned earlier, when you got that property, you immediately started looking at your forages and not only for your your livestock, but for yourself. What are you going to grow? Your garden area, getting things set up for that. And then you had mentioned you thought about sheep before. Were sheep your first impulse? And you're like, oh, I need to get some sheep to go on here? Or what was your thought pattern to figure out what kind of livestock you wanted? And then the steps you took to implement that. Yes, I wanted sheep. Just again, going back to the my biblical worldview that I have, you know, I, I just think of, of Jacob and his, his flocks of sheep. And I actually wanted to get Jacob's sheep. I really liked, liked the look of them and stuff. But, you know, here in Missouri, it's just Katahdin, hair sheep. You know, I don't have anything registered, but there was a, a, a friend of mine that had a pretty good flock. So I made a, made a deal with him and bought a few ewes. And then I got a couple rams that I'm going to butcher this fall. And then another friend of mine that had Katahdin here, sheep, he actually had a red ram I got from him. And I'm going to use those as my, my breeding flock. But yeah, so the sheep were just kind of always, I don't know, my, my biblical worldview, I wanted to, I wanted to have sheep. The, the funny part of it though, was, you know, when you kind of, a lot of people say, well, you know, sheep are, sheep are so great. Goats are, goats are just a pain, you know, they're, they're a pain. Well, our, my neighbor, who's been a great help. Roger, he's, you know, moving in here. He's been here for the past 20 some years, but a Missouri resident his whole life, rant, farmer, rancher, just a huge asset. I mean, I wouldn't be 
even where I am right now in the past, you know, couple months of getting livestock, if it wasn't for his help and guidance, you know, so having a good mentor is, is really awesome. But at any rate, he gave us two bottle goats. So my son and I gave us two bottle goats and, you know, my wife loves them. My son loves them. And they're really, they're almost like dogs, you know? So, you know, especially since they were bottle goats, but then we run them with the does right now or with the ewes. So the does and the ewes are running together. That's how we ended up with goats. But I actually, I'm now that I've had them, you know, the sheep seem to be more skittish and can be a little bit more difficult moving than the goats. The goats are so easy. The goats are no problem. They just walk right up to you and you can, you can move them around wherever the sheep, they just want to run away from us at the time. And, you know, the rams aren't as bad as the ewes, but for whatever reason, the ewes are really, really flighty. And then the Dexters. So we wanted, we were considering a Jersey, getting a Jersey cow, but we were kind of, you know, would it be too much milk for what we want? You know, my wife does want to, you know, she wants to make her own. Well, she has, she, you know, from, cause we were getting raw milk, um, from a friend, but you know, making our own cheeses and yogurts and, um, a lot of our own, um, dairy products, plus having good raw milk. So that kind of is why we wanted to have a cow. Not that we want to have a commercial, you know, that, that I want to be selling dairy, but it's really just our own personal goal. I actually have a, have a goal. I want to minimize the need for, you know, I have a tractor. I have a small 24 horsepower New Holland tractor that I've actually had from our two acre homestead for years. So this thing's, it's, I, I drug it out here in the back of a U-Haul trailer. I had to take it, take it apart and everything. But at any rate, I've been dragging it around, but I want to kind of get away from that and move to draft power. Um, so originally you might, know, my, my mind went to, to horses, but then after about a year, I don't know, a year ago, I kind of started thinking about oxen and that's where Dexter's kind of seem like they'd be a good fit because they're a tri-purpose, um, breed, you know, you can get dairy out of them, which, you know, they don't produce a ton, but you can get some, you can get enough for your own personal consumption and then. You can use them, you know, obviously they're good for meat and they are good for, uh, they can be used for oxen, but they're on the smaller size. And since we're on a 20 acre homestead with only a little bit of additional ground, which I don't even, I probably won't have next year. So that's where I'm kind of, I just got to keep a small herd size on the Dexter and they're really more so just for our own personal meat, dairy. And then, like I said, I'd like, I wouldn't mind having some oxen. And actually you had a guest a few, few episodes ago really kind of inspired me to that again. Not that I, I mean, it's still in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really worried about it, you know, but. Kevin was on here not too many episodes ago, I think episode 60, and he was talking about oxen. Well, as listeners of the podcast know, if they've listened to any time at all, I'm interested in everything. I think oxen would be so much fun. I mean, it'd be work, but I just don't have time for it. It's one of those things. I mean, especially coming from that, that permaculture mindset of trying to, to reduce our foreign inputs and our reliance on, on, you know, on heavy metals and things like that, you know, it just the oxen <laughs> kind of makes sense. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer and, um, in, in kind of it's, we need to, we've kind of gone so far and technology has done great things for us, but I think that we're using it and most of society is using it too much as a crutch. And, you know, we've completely forgot the, our ecological memory. And I really believe it's time to kind of like, you know, look to the ancient paths again and start to try to settle down and live our lives a little, a uh, little more simply and a little closer to the land. Because I think that's, that's really a lot of the answers with, with most of the world's problems. If we just kind of thought about living a little, little, sim little more simply, I think the, our world would change a lot. Yeah. And I, I think with the homesteading movement that to me, looking in from the outside, it seems like it's growing momentum and really a lot going on there. And, you know, I follow a few people on YouTube that's homesteading. And I like to think that some of the things I do is very relatable to homesteading. With my beef cattle and my sheep, I do it on a much larger scale. But, you know, I got a few chickens. I've got some quaternix quail. I've got some beehives. You know, I kind of like that. Sadly, I haven't been able to introduce much of those permaculture principles into my zones around my house. But maybe, maybe one day, you know, we'll see how it goes. But I think you're, you coming on here, there's lots of homesteaders out there. And there's lots of people interested in permaculture. Adding that grazing feature to it 
I think is great. And I think a lot of people just wondering where to get started. So you talked about bringing those animals in and you talked a little bit about your electric fence. What were some, some issues you had there just getting started with your sheep? So you brought them in. Was that your first time with sheep? Were they, did you have any prior experience with them? That was my first real experience with sheep. You know, as uh, when I was, you know, 20 years ago, when I was a teenager, I worked on a dairy farm for a while. And I also worked on a horse farm for, for a season. So I was familiar with, with, you know, cattle and horses, but not so much with sheep with that size livestock. The guy that I got him from in the past, you know, year or so, just kind of seeing now he wasn't, he wasn't using really rotational grazing, at least at that level, you know, he had about two different pastures. He'd kick them back and forth to just as he needed to. But, you know, as far as handling them and stuff, kind of where I learned from that, but I just brought him home in the back of my pickup truck, you know, with a cattle panel, I just folded a cattle panel up in four and put them up in there and hauled them back. And I had done a little bit of work ahead of time, basically going through and clearing paths and I'm just using the, the sheep net from Premier One for the sheep, uh, the sheep and goat net. So, which is, it's great, but it's horrible on an old field where you have all kinds of things like, you know, staghorn sumac growing up and all the bear. I mean, so anytime you move it, it gets caught on every little piece of debris, every little stick, and it can get frustrating. You know, that's probably been... I'm going to say one of my biggest challenges is actually moving my sheep. And it's actually maybe just, you know, my wife and I have talked about it, you know, about maybe, maybe just downsizing the sheep and kind of sticking with the Dexters and the goats and really just to have that, the, at least to have two animals. I, I want to at least have two different kinds of animals. You know, the sheep and the goats share the same parasites, but the cattle don't. So they actually can act as dead end hosts to each other. If you're running them either together or even, you know, in, in a leader follow system. So. I'm thinking about, you know, about maybe making changes with that. We'll see how, what happens this, this fall when I start butchering the sheep, you know, the rams and, but you know, that was probably our biggest challenge. And then water, water was a real big challenge because we have a well and I do have at our garden area, I did put in a 3000 gallon rainwater catchment tank that I'm catching all the, while the rainwater coming off the front side of the pole barn and that's going into a tank, but it's, you know, it's been a dry year. I put the, I only got it up in April. So I missed the March rains and April was completely dry. We got a little bit of rain in, in May, but the back half of May, all of June and most of July were all dry. So, you know, I ran that thing out and I was pretty much, I was, I had a 55 gallon drum and a little cart and on the back of the lawnmower or on the back of the tractor and just hauling it back doing, you know, giving them water that way, but it's a learning curve. And now I've, I got a, I got a bigger trailer. So I got a truck bed trailer I found on Craigslist and I have a IBC 275 gallon tote, but I only fill it to about 150 gallons. Cause otherwise, especially in the heat, it just, the water before the, the cattle get through the water, it gets too hot, you know? So I, but I, I got that, I got that hooked up to a garden hose and just one of those little giant automatic water, you know, water floats and a tub and that's made my life a lot easier. So, you know, just figuring out the best water system to be able to follow these cattle around. And, and so far that's it. The sheep, you know, they don't really, the sheep and goats aren't bad at all. I mean, five gallon bucket a day gets them through is all they need. And, uh, I just have that 55 gallon drum in the back yet that we fill it up. And then it's one of my son's tasks to go and fill up the, the tank, you know, so. And that's one of the exciting things about, about homesteading and, and grazing, you know, he's right there with me. He's nine years old and he's, he loves doing it. He likes going out when we move the animals and we do have, you know, we have two livestock guardian dogs that I didn't talk about yet that we do have with the sheep and his, one of his duties is to take care of the dogs, make sure the dogs are fed, you know, so it, it's, to me, it's great because it teaches, gives him a job, a purpose and teaches him responsibility. Oh yeah. Very true. Just jumping back with the sheep and the cattle, we, working with a small number there, water is always an issue. But when you're working with a smaller number, especially with sheep and goats, because their their water requirements are so much less than cattle. But you're able to solve that and provide and have a solution for getting them water without uh, a lot of issue. I mean, for example, for me and water, water is always 
a limiting factor and I've got to make sure they've got access to a pond or something. One year, I guess last year, we were really dry and I hauled water over to one of the properties I leased because both ponds were dry. But I was hauling two of those IBC totes, which I estimated enough for that small. I only had about 10 cows over on that property. And I estimated it to be plenty and almost enough for two days. But in reality, they were not getting near that amount of time out of it. And I was happy to fill it every day. It, it got really cumbersome for how much time and work that was taking. But when you're working with a smaller number, you're able to do some of those things that you can't do with a larger number. So just getting started, it makes it a little bit easier. And just to continue on my little rambling here, that Premier One netting makes it so easy to get started with sheep and goats. I, I do agree. It will catch on everything out in your pasture, and it will have you saying words that you shouldn't say. But it works. I mean, you can get out there. You can throw you up where you need it. You're hauling water out there. So with just a few head, you can have a lot going on with just a few items for fencing and stuff. Rather than having to go in and do a whole bunch of infrastructure to get started, that's the real, the beauty, or that's one of the beauties to me of electric fence with the netting or even with your Dexter cows using your poly rope, your infrastructure costs are a lot less to get started. Yeah. I mean, and I, it, they are, and it's, it is, they're great tools. You know, one of the things that I have to, you know, consider is with the netting, you know, where the poly wire is nice because you can make it whatever size you need it to be. And you just roll up the excess with the netting. You have to make sure. And, and it's tough when I'm trying to work around a lot of trees that I'm trying to leave in, you know, so I'm trying to, to look and line things up and, and measure and I'll cut. And then sometimes you got to come back when you get the netting up and like, Oh no, I got to come over. I got to mow a little over here. Cause I got to run it kind of around this way now, you know? So, but you know, it's all in the process and it's working good because I'm, I can be real adaptive with where I'm grazing them, how I'm grazing them, like you said. So it is a great tool and it's allowing me to kind of get the land cleared off. You know, I'm not saying cleared off, but like just try to, there, it's so much, you know, to get them in there and even the sheep, you know, to get them and the goats in there eating a lot of those Forbes trampling stuff. The Dexters, you know, they've been down on the neighboring property, so they haven't been doing too much, which is, is fine because it's been so dry. It's worked. It's actually really been a blessing, but I'm excited to get the, I'm going to stop grazing that sometime here in the beginning of September and then bring them back up to my property, which I'm excited to get them back up there because I want to get their manure and urine and, you know, and them trampling, trampling everything down, you know, too, and, and moving them around up, you know, back up on my property again. But, you know, yeah, having that number, it's allowing me to, to get started. And then, you know, the, the big thing with permaculture is you don't necessarily, you don't even want to start on a permaculture design on a property until you've been there for a year and have kind of watched it over four seasons. And then is that's when, you, you know, and, it, and it's, a, that's a hard thing because I want to get going right away and I want to start, you know, so, I mean, I kind of plugged away at the projects that I knew, you know, things that I knew I was going to do. Well, like it, this is the only place it really makes sense to put it in a garden. So let's at least start planning and going with that. But even that has changed and, you know, just, just starting, you know, you end up changing. And it's the same thing with the grazing, you know, where I'm learning, you know, where I have better, you know, what are my drier pastures? What are my wetter areas? You know, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a system. I'm thinking to use like a laneway system of T posts and probably five wire, five or six wire fence, where I'll probably have at least three hot wires on that. And then use, just use poly wire across and then be able to move them daily and have about four or five runs of that, maybe about a hundred to 150 feet across and kind of segment off my property. There's a good book called the permaculture market garden, and it's, it's not really about grazing, although it talks about integrating animals and stuff like that. And probably gives a little, little nod or just at least to mention, you know, the rotational grazing, but it's really about actually setting up a market garden. However, in there, it talks about basically breaking your property down into grids and starting to map it and understand it. And now whether that's a, you know, you know, you take, say, maybe a grid is 100 by 100 or 100 by 50, and then you grid off your property. But 
you know, having that in mind with your pastures, and then you can start to use that grid that you have to say, well, this, you know, this pasture up here is, you know, these are my wet seasons. These are my, you know, you know, this is where I want to have them when it's dry and kind of, it, it really helps teach that holistic mindset of, of trying to break your property into sections and understanding it and being able to, you know, adapt your grazing that way. And again, it's not about grazing. It's about setting up a market garden, but integrating it's a permaculture. So it's, you're integrating whatever, you know, based on the size of your land, you know, you know, farming in context. You know, and that's kind of an interesting subject that grid like, or however, I know I've been a listener and follower of um, Greg Judy for a long time. And I know he says when he first started out, he had some semi-permanent fences so that he could rotate his cows easily. And then as he's gotten more experience and more time on his hands, he's taken those fences out so he can really design his pastures the way he wants with polywire. So for me, my dad's land, we have permanent fences in, and that's, that's how I control the rotation. For lease land, I'm just using polywire and designing my paddocks. But one of my lease lands I have a 10-year contract on, and I am thinking about doing kind of a grid on it so that moving cattle takes me less time. And sadly, the way my property is located, I've got a few properties and I have to run two herds of cattle. And then plus I have my dad's herd. So by the time I get to doing all that, time runs short. So I'm just thinking a grid like that frees you up to do some other things, even though there may be some negatives. But I'm, I've been thinking about that grid or kind of using a basis of a grid for what I'm doing. So it's kind of interesting you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, I just, it makes a lot of sense to me now that I've been kind of, you know, sitting down and turn, you know, if all I got to do is go and essentially, you know, pull my couple poly wires across, let the, you know, the cattle will be more than, or the sheep, they'll be more than eager to get to the next one. And then I can, you know, pull them back across and just, and then just basically strip graze them up through there. And I think that that, it, that's the biggest thing. Cause I, I would love to move all my animals faster across the, the property. Um, but you know, I'm probably moving the cattle every five days. Um, you know, and I try to make the paddock sizes that they, that they last, which they've been, you know, so I've been trying to judge that, but it's, it's all, it, it's all learning process. I never did it before. So I'm, it's, you know, trying to judge it. And the first time I set up the paddock, that's like, well, no, I got to, I got to go a little bit bigger, move them a little quicker. And, you know, I'm kind of limited with the, with the fence. I do have a few extra, but really I need my extra net to, to be able to create my next paddock and then run the, run the sheep into it. And then, you know, start shuffling fences. It's a whole, you know, kind of dance of, of moving them all around, especially since I'm keeping the rams separate from the ewes because I'm trying to avoid winter lambing. Everybody, you know, right here in Missouri, everybody that I know, Everybody's lambing the end of December through February. And, you know, we get those really cold spells, you know, right around that time where it gets well below zero and, and guys are bringing lambs into the house and stuff like that. Not that I, you know, what I mean, not that I wouldn't do that if I had to, but why lose the sleep? Why, why have to worry about it? You know, so much, I would rather just try to let the, let it happen natural. So I'm going to, I'm probably going to shoot for November, December to, to put the ram in with the ewes so that they are, they're going to lamb hopefully when the, you know, sometime in May, April, you know, April, May. So just that kind of makes sense to me. The Dexters. So I didn't talk a whole lot about Dexters yet. I do have a bull. So I have, we have two cows, well, cow, a heifer. And so the, and the cow had a bull calf. So he's now a steer. He's sirloin is his name. So he knows his, he knows his lot in life, but yeah, you know, it's, and then he actually came with that name, the people we got him from, which that's a whole story in itself, which I can get into, but really it's, and then we have a bull, Fritz the bull. And the reason we, we kind of decided, so, so backing up and getting into it a little bit more, we were looking and thinking we wanted a Jersey, but then we were kind of going back and forth. Well, you know, we didn't, we knew we didn't want a Jersey bull. So I knew I was going to either have to take him somewhere do AI. I'm not a, I'm not, a, you know, that's not what I want to do in my homestead, trying to kind of keep things more of a, of a pure, more naturalist type of view, I guess I would just put it. So I, we kind of leaned away from that 
we're thinking about Dexter's and we were just looking at Craigslist and we had the goal to get cows this summer and coming into it, once we got the sheep and the goats, we kind of thought, oh, maybe that's all we're going to get this year. But we looked on Craigslist and there were, this herd of cows were available. And actually it was, it was a different cow that was part of that herd that was originally on there. And I contacted the guy who we became, become really good friends with, talked to me, he said, well, I have another cow and I also have a heifer and I have a bull for sale, you know, that I'm going to probably consider selling too. Cause he lost, he has a 10 acre homestead down outside of Springfield. Then he leased 10 acres across the road, which was the pasture for the cattle. Well, he lost that lease, that piece of land sold. He had to get them off. And so, you know, he had no choice but to sell them. And I got the whole group, you know, at a reasonable price. And so it, it kind of made it worth it to do it because pretty much for as much as we were budgeting and think we were going to spend on a Jersey cow, we ended up with the whole herd of Dexter's, which was kind of something we wanted originally, you know, for years we've been thinking, well, Dexter's would be a good breed for worse. You know, we wanted, we kind of talked, my wife really likes hot, you know, the Scottish Highlanders, I think, but I don't think we have a good, you know, it's too hot here for them. I, I mean, at least I would think so, but. I think that Dexter's, um, they're definitely seem to be a good fit for our, our homestead so far. And that's, that's our Dexter story. I do, you know, I want to get them up here. I'm not going to be in a big hurry. Although right now you can, uh, on Craigslist, you can actually get, get them at a decent price. A lot of people are selling them because it was been dry and they can't afford the hay. The hay prices were high, you know, so that's kind of a couple things I guess we can talk about would be like, you know, my strategy for winter is I'm, I'm planted, I'm going to have to feed for up to 60 days. So I tried to do the whole calculation and figured in some waste and I, you know, but I, I got my bales a while, but it was, it was hard to find hay right now. This part of Missouri, they're bringing it in. I did find a guy that was a little further east of here where they got more rain. He was able to get some cuttings, but it was a hundred dollars a bale for four by, you know, four by five bales. I got some alfalfa that that came in from, I think Kansas. And that I just, I was given to the cow as I was milking her. And then the, it, I kind of use it as a treat. The Dexters really like it and the, the goats come up and they'll eat it from your hands. So that's more, I don't feed a lot of that. That's more so just for candy. But, you know, my plan is to, I have enough to at least go 60 days and I'm just going to, I'm trying to stockpile as much as my property as I can, kind of grazing things early. And then there's stuff that didn't get grazed that I'm just, I'm going to let go for winter and try to graze them on that. So, so that's really a great benefit you have that you're able to graze your cows over on your neighbor's property, start stockpiling and getting ready for winter. Yeah, it was a huge blessing. I kind of thought about if, if I didn't have that, it would have been a little, it would probably been a little tougher. I was definitely would need more hay. So I know they intend to do a lot of it in hay, but there's a lot of it that actually kind of grew up that has a lot of trees in it and a lot of brush. So I don't know if they're going to spend the, uh, you know, if it's going to be worth them to clear like that couple acres over in the corner, kind of where I'm grazing right now, I'm kind of hoping that maybe the, the get the guy that's built and, you know, doing the hay decides that it's not worth his time and, and I can lease it for, for grazing for next summer too. You know, even if it's just basically just for a couple months in the summer, I think it would be worth it just because I only need to lease like five or 10 acres would be enough for summer grazing for him. Yeah. That sounds like an excellent plan. Well, Joshua, we need to move on to our overgrazing section where we take a deeper dive into something you're doing on your operation. And we have a little bit different topic today than usual. And as you said earlier, we're going to talk a little bit about mushrooms. And if you've watched any of Greg Judy's videos, he's big about mushrooms. So I'm excited to find out more about it. My knowledge is basically zero. It, it's been kind of early on in my, our homesteading permaculture journey. We, kind of got turned on to mushrooms, inoc inoculating mushrooms, mainly for shiitake. I've also done it for lion's manes, but shiitakes are kind of our, our main ones that we've been doing. And with always with the goal of actually that being kind of our primary goal, you know, our primary business. So like I said, I'm working from home, so I'm not, not really getting any profits, trying to get profits off of my homestead at this point. We're just taking care of ourselves. But I do intend to try to build this into at least a, a little bit of a side business. So our property, like I said, has a lot of mature oaks, but it also has a lot of younger oaks that are perfect at the size for mushrooms. So since you let, I'll, I'll just kind of go into what, you know, what it is. So you can either take branches or young oaks, basically three to say eight inches in diameter, a log about just call it three foot long. 
you go through and you, you drill a series of holes, like kind of a diamond pattern holes across it. You know, I started out when I first did it just with like a, you know, a, a drill bit. It took a while. Well, they make, you can use an angle grinder and like a high speed drill in it and it goes real fast. So you drill the holes in the log and then <clears throat> field and forest products. I think it's field and forest.com. They, there there's other companies out there, but they'll sell a spawn. So you get the spawn. And it's a sawdust and it's a, it's been inoculated with mycelium from shiitakes from, and there's all different strains that you can get based on the fruiting temperature and the fruit form and size. And you basically, you inoculate the logs, you kind of plant the logs, you take a wax, food grade wax, you seal up all the, all the holes. And then basically you, you let them logs sit in a shaded spot and keep them somewhat moist, about an inch or so worth of, of precipitation, or you got to water them every, every week, just so that they don't dry out so that they last longer for you. And about after, depending on the strain, six to 12 months, they start fruiting for mushrooms and they'll last for several years. You can do a forced fruit where you soak them and they, you soak them and then you can kind of time your fruitings more, or you can kind of let them fruit naturally. We've been doing it naturally. Once I ramp up, my plan is once we ramp up more into a production mode, I would soak them so that I could get at least somewhat predictable harvests. That's kind of what we're going to use our wooded area for is, is what they call a log yard. So essentially just a shaded area. We intend to, to also develop those areas around there. You know, it's a good area to kind of run ducks through your log yards, which we've done ducks before, but you can kind of graze ducks through there. I think when they're not fruiting, you could, you could graze, you know, goats through there through that area just to help keep things cleaned up, make sure the poison and other things aren't taken over the log yard. So you can use your animals in this. And again, with creating silvo pasture, what I really want to do is coppice a lot of the younger oaks. So if you go in and, and do what a coppice cut is, a cut in two to three foot, cut it on a little bit of, an, of a slant so that, so that water will shut off the stump. But eventually from the base of that, you'll get another, another you know, other oak trees will start growing up. But if you let them grow up again into another, like a, a four inch branch, you know, four to five inch branch is about perfect. So you let them grow up to that diameter about, you know, five years, they might be there and then you can cut them again. So it's, it's a constantly regenerating system to be able to, to have these oak logs to be able to cultivate mushrooms. And then once the logs are spent, you can use them basically just kind of throw them in a bigger compost pile. You can use them for something in permaculture that they call hugaculture mounds, which are kind of like a, like a planting bed that uses a lot of, um, kind of a dead wood medium to hold water and retain water within your garden beds. So there's, you know, it's kind of a, of a full kind of closed for the most part, closed loop cycle within the homestead, you know, I'm going to, so that's, that's kind of my biggest thing. And, and how can I utilize animals on both ends, you know, within the silva pasture area where, where I'm essentially growing my stock for, for creating logs every year, you know, so it's usually a fall process, fall, winter process. When they're dormant is when you want to cut them, you know, so go through, cut them and then come back and clean up our log yards as necessary with using the animals. Snail, like I said, ducks work great because snails are a big predator, you know, a big pest shouldn't say big, but they're your probably biggest pest with a mushroom is going to be snails if you have a lot of snails. But ducks love snails. They go through the soil, they go through all the leaves and, and find them, eat them for you. So integrating animals in, in all your different systems is really helpful. Now, I've got a couple of questions for you. You mentioned using oak logs to do it. I'm assuming you can use other species as well, but you chose oak logs before because they're available or because of the type of mushroom you wanted? Mainly availability. And also they're probably the, the oak is going to be your best for shiitake. You can use other woods, you know, other woods are, you know, there's a whole list of what you can, you know, what works, what doesn't work. It's just that the oak is, you know, is a nice dense wood and the denser the wood, the longer it's going to fruit for you. Because basically as that mycelium goes through there and it kind of breaks it all down. It's just the, the denser the wood, the, the longer the life of the log will be, you know, but yes, you can use, use other species. And with your, your ducks, you've talked about grazing them through, will they not bother 
uh, the mushrooms when they're fruity? They might, you know, so that's the, uh, you'd have to time your grazing so that your, your log yards aren't fruiting when you're grazing them through there. So, but they, they probably, they wouldn't be too bad because a lot of them, the, a lot of you stack them up. So most of the mushrooms will probably be up and out of reach. The ducks aren't like a chicken. They're not going to like jump up on top of the pile, you know, so they're pretty much just going to hang on the ground. And, and then, you know, when we talk about species, I had, I've always used khaki Campbell's is what I've kind of liked. They're a pretty, pretty good egg layer. I think, you know, they, they probably give a good 200 eggs per hen per year. We've incubated them over the years, you know, incubated some of our own eggs and we've eaten a few of the dra extra drakes and, you know, they, they're pretty good. They eat about like a, a, probably better than a wild duck for sure, but you get about as much of a breast and a, a you know, leg meat out of it that you get out of a wild duck, but you know, they're, they're pretty decent, but the eggs are delicious. The eggs are thicker than a chicken egg, you know, good for dippy eggs or, you know, what we call, or, you know, over, over easy eggs. And, um, they're good for, uh, good for omelets too. They're nice and thick for making omelets. We don't have any ducks, but I've thought about getting some, but just mainly for aesthetic purposes. I like the black and white magpies. I think they're interesting. When it comes to duck eggs, I have had, so, you know, our, our ducks are more, are on a pasture. So they're, they're not on a, on a pond, you know, I'm basically, you know, the, the ducks actually, they're a little, they can be messier. That's why I do tend to move them a bit. And I'm always, I'm, I'm actually moving their waters pretty much every day. And I just use like a three gallon pan, you know, rubber pan, because it works good in the winter time when it freezes, you can just knock the block of ice out, you know, and put some fresh water in for them, but they need to have a little bit, you know, they need to have enough water that they can get their beaks in there and keep their, their nostrils cleaned out and stuff like that from when they're eating and then when they dig in the mud. So I'll usually give them about two of those pans just for, you know, a half a dozen ducks or so. Uh, I mean, you could run more, but I, I like to have plenty of option, plenty of water for them, but they don't run. So the point is though, they don't run on ponds. I've had duck eggs from people that had ponds where the ducks were eating fish and stuff. And there was definitely a stronger you know, fishy t flavor to the eggs versus if they're pastured raised ducks, they're, they're, they're not going to have any different of a taste than a, really it's th than a chicken egg. It, like I said, it's just, they're slightly, I would call it a thicker, a little bit of a thicker egg baking bakers love supposedly like duck eggs. I know my wife, when she, when she bakes, she uses the duck eggs for the most part in most of her, in most of her baking. Oh, that, that is interesting. It doesn't, surprise me that stands to reason because with milk cows you have to be careful what you graze them or you can flavor that milk so i could see that happening i had never really thought about it and then on the baking aspect my wife's an excellent cook but she tells me she's not a baker so maybe that contributes to the no eggs no duck eggs joshua it is time for us to move on to our famous four questions for our famous four questions, same four questions we asked of all of our guests, our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? So I'm actually going to say the Stockman Grass Farmer, which is kind of, you know, I, I think I'm probably on the small end of things when it comes to, you know, you know, getting the Stockman Grass Farmer on, I have 20 oh, yeah. acres. But I've noticed in, in a lot of Joe's kind of comments and some of his columns and stuff, he's talking about the, the kind of influx of homesteaders that have been subscribing to the Stockman Grass Farmer. And I, I didn't even know it was out there until I listened to a lot of John Kemp's Regenerative Agriculture podcast. Somebody along the line had recommended that. And I would say that was, that's probably my number one favorite. I actually, I have, I have the subscription. And then I have a bunch of, I went and bought a bunch of back issues because you can get them a lot cheaper. So I went online and when I, so when I get done with the current one, I just have a, a an old one and I'll start to read through and I kind of, I keep it in my other office if you, if you kind of know what I mean. And that's what my, uh, that's kind of what, where I get a lot of reading done. And it's, you know, cause it's hard to read a lot this time of year in the, in the winter time, I do a lot more reading by the wood stove in the evenings. So when it comes to an actual book. I only, again, I just started reading a lot of grazing books. I've always kind of just have read a lot of different permaculture related books, but the Joe Salatin salad bar beef is definitely a, 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 an entertaining read, a good read. 
I have his pastures for poultry, which I, I haven't read yet, but I've, I've probably watched every YouTube video that kind of been out there on Joe Salatin style chickens over the year. But, you know, there's so many good resources and that Stockland grass farmer, you know, Greg Judy's books are in there. You know, like everybody's books are in there and there's definitely, there's no, no shortage of educational materials out there. There's not. From books to YouTube channels, to podcasts, to websites, there is a huge selection out there to fuel whatever learning style you have and whatever time you have. Our second question, Joshua, what is your favorite tool for your farm? It's probably the electric fencing because honestly, I have you know, my, my perimeter fence is kind of broke down. It would be tough to cross fence to be able to rotational graze. I wouldn't be able to graze a neighboring property if it wasn't for Premier One fence or, or yeah, I mean, I know there's other products. I've just, I kind of, I don't know, Premier One is what came across the board, you know, the radar first for me. And I kind of got in with Premier One as far as that's where I started buying it. And it just becomes a go-to. They're in Iowa, I'm in Missouri. It's, you know, within, unless, unless shipping, which shipping can get messed up anytime. But I mean, I've gotten stuff as quick as like almost the next day. If I order it early enough in the morning, it, it can sometimes be there, you know, the next eve, the following evening. But if, you know, if not, it's at least, you know, three days you have stuff from them. And it's, it's a very versatile tool. Like we were talking about earlier, although I'm a bit of a Luddite in many ways and, and kind of don't necessarily always completely see it, have a great value in, in a lot of the newer technologies and stuff. However, I don't know, it, it, like I said, it's, it's allowing us to do something as homesteaders that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. We wouldn't be out here grazing animals if it wasn't for electric, you know, poly wire, poly rope, electric netting, the, the whole, the whole nine yards. Ideally, I'd love to have a bunch of hedgerow, you know, nice thick hedgerows that were impenetrable, but that's a long ways out. So until then, I'm going to be using the, using the, the wire and the electric, you know, the solar chargers. So true. And Premier One's a great supplier there. Uh, there's some others as well. It's whoever works best for you is, is great. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? Well, I guess I'd be talking to myself, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess if they don't have animals yet, definitely, you know, I would say I probably, I'm not going to say bit off too much, but I bit off a lot and I'm still chewing and trying to keep up. And, but you, you know, you talk about it with other guests, you just ha kind of have to get started. You just got to try to do something. But the, the biggest thing is make, make sure that before you bring an animal onto the property, make sure you know where it's going to go and you got a home for it. I've been guilty of that a time or two where I might've had something set up for a mainly poultry, not for bigger livestock, but I brought young chicks on and, you know, cause I had a, I had brooders set up and I had something intermediate, but maybe didn't have a full, you know, and I'm scrambling last minute to get a, you know, something built. So jump in. But make sure you're doing your research and you have, you have a plan at least, you know, two steps ahead. You're going to think at least two steps ahead where they're going to be. Otherwise, you're going to fall behind. You know, you mentioned that about buying poultry and you, you had part of the, the facility set up ready to go, but you still had to get a little bit done. I may be guilty of that once in a while, too. You know, you think, oh, I got all this time. I'll, get, I'll have it done by then. And then you're rushing around to get it done in time. And Joshua, last question for you, where can others find out more about you? Well, so I guess that's part of the thing. I'm not a social media guy, so I'm not really, I don't have a big presence. Um, I do have a website that I actually just launched. I've had it for a little bit, but I didn't launch it until the end of this winter. And it's really not so much about me or even my farm. It's more about my uh, kind of some of my ideology and theology when it comes to we as created beings should be kind of rethinking the way that the current trajectory of the world that it's going and try to to think of you know change directory and try to do things in a more regenerative way think about regenerative agriculture think about you know i've got i've drawn a lot of inspiration recently from wendell berry you know so i know one of your your last guest uh, actually that podcast just came out recently but it was benton lane had brought up about wendell berry and um i just kind of Thought that was interesting that because I was listening to that podcast today and and he um he said that uh he got in, inspiration from him and that's kind of my website has is on that line but it's it's very small there's not much of really information 
the name of my website is voice in the wilderness permaculture.com. So I kind of got the domain the other, you know, maybe a year ago or something like that. And sat on it for a while trying to think what I really, what, what was my goal? You know, what's my goal with that? And in the past year, I've been so busy on the homestead. I really haven't had time to, to really post much of anything on the website. So people can go there, but there's, there's maybe like two articles there or, you know, two blog posts and that's, that's about it. But yeah, I appreciate it. If maybe if I start getting a little more traffic there, it'll inspire me to spend a little bit more time and, and write a few more things. And I've really liked, I do want to try to record some of the progress that I'm doing and, and probably post that on there because it's, you know, that's my goal. I, I want people to know that there are other options. I think that we can use technology as a good tool. I think the biggest thing is not allowing technology to control us, but we can control the technology and um, kind of live a lifestyle where a lot of people can, can work from home. That's a great blessing that I have that uh, I realize not everybody can have, but it, it, it enables me to, to be here on the homestead and kind of being able to keep tabs on things throughout the day. So that's, you know, that's where technology has played a big role in being able to do this. Well, Joshua, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing about your journey today. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the podcast, what you do. It's very informational. I like to listen to them during the day while I'm, while I'm working, I'll listen to, uh, try to listen to a podcast or two, you know, get some time in during the day to listen to one in the background. And, you know, it definitely, they're helpful in this whole journey because I'm like, well, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? You know, somebody brings it up and you have a great line of questioning really, really helps draw out some information from people to be helpful to other grazers. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast. Helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer in their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.